Good morning, church family. So good to see you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 10. We're going to finish chapter 10 this morning, picking up in verse 22, where Craig so wonderfully read for us, Behold, believe the word and works of Jesus. You caught the hint of that conversation in the reading that's already happened. While you're turning there, are you aware that one out of every nine people that you interview on the street would deny that man ever walked on the moon, despite evidence to the contrary? My great-grandmother was one of those nine, and her claim to logic was this, and I quote with the accent, you can't walk on no light. And that was her logic as to why that didn't happen. You can't walk on no light. Some people don't believe anything because they just don't. You can give them evidence. You can show them whatever you want to show them. Now, I can't take you to the moon and show you that, but pick a topic, and you've got folks that go like, well, as Shepard is prone to say sometimes, I'm not too sure about all that. I'm just not too sure about all that. Jesus is encountering some ardent unbelievers who have seen some things and heard some things and ought to know better. And yet we see the spiritual dimension into what's happening. They've not been drawn by the Father to Jesus yet, and so we see that play out right in front of our eyes. The text this morning uh, has some jarring truths in it, but my intention, I believe the tone of the text, especially for the believer, is to encourage us today. I want to encourage you and remind you that regardless of what popular culture does or what the church by and large does that has most of the screen time, I'm going to tell you something, you can fully trust the Word of God. And I don't care if professor so-and-so says this or pastor so-and-so says that. It has to come under the authority of God's word to stand for eternity. You can fully trust with reckless abandon God's word. You can also fully trust with reckless abandon the work of God. God has revealed His Word to us in a language we can understand to point us to the work that God has done and is doing in the hearts of His sheep. I think both of those encouragements will come out in a big way, even as we see some tension in the text this morning. The third encouragement is this weird gear shift that happens toward the end of chapter 10. But I'm so glad it's there. I want to tell you that you have friends and family and co-workers, probably like I do, that are not walking with Jesus. They might be near you, but they're far from Jesus. I want to encourage you for something. We can pray that they'll get there. There's a there, and we'd like to see them get there. Amen? I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus has declared himself to be the good shepherd in chapter 10. We talked about that last week. And he did it. He didn't really follow the church growth movement rules from the 80s, which said keep it positive. He actually did it by showing very bad examples of very bad shepherds 
to show how he was in fact God's fulfillment of what it looked like to be a shepherd. He said, I'm the one who gathers the sheep, who guards the sheep. In fact, I give my life for the sheep. The false and bad shepherds are those that scatter the sheep, expose the sheep, and make sure they are looking after their own interests more than that of the sheep. At the end of that passage from last week in verses 19 through uh, 21 of John chapter number 10, if you'll look with me, it says there was division. Again, there was division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, many of the Jews said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus causes division. And we've heard that's a bad thing. Well, division can be a bad thing, but I want to tell you something. Jesus said, I've come to divide. He said that in Scripture. In fact, the truth that I'm bringing and that I am will cause families to turn against each other. We see little semblances of this probably here in the United States, but it really shows up in Um, Hindu homes and Muslim homes where the one who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is ostracized and even sometimes violently attacked for naming the name Jesus. Jesus causes division. Truth causes division. And if we look at the text, uh, good shepherding also causes division. We see division is a bad thing, but here division is clearly the will of God. And then we pick up in verse 22 in our text today. Now, it's worth noting, I don't know if your footnote tells you this, or if you've got a study Bible there, it should point you to this. It takes some extra notes there. But it's worth noting that between verses 21 and 22, about two months has passed. Now, that doesn't mean that you press pause on the video and everybody's just frozen for two months and then a conversation persists. Life goes on for about two months, and we know that, Because this next great feast has begun. Verse 22 takes us to the feast of dedication. Uh, It takes place at Jerusalem and it was winter. Now normally I don't chase too many of these little rabbits on all these little uh, cultural nuances of Bible days. Especially if they have no bearing on us now. But just for your uh, kicks and grins this morning. This feast took place on the 25th day of the month of Chislev which is our December. So December 25th, same thing happened on December 25th, like in the U.S. that we know, okay? Christmas, yeah? So if you really want to be a Bible nerd and irritate your family, when they ask you this year to read the Christmas Bible passage, you could start at John 10 and, no, don't do that. Don't do that. That'll make them, yeah. I I would not suggest that. Jesus is walking into the temple during this uh, high festival and feast and the Jewish people gather around him. There's a group that gather around him. Notice the question that they ask. I don't know that I have it on the screen, but look back at your text, what we've already read. They ask the question. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? As if Jesus has not been teaching and preaching and saying things. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Really? Does it just blow your mind sometimes the things you read in Scripture like that? But doesn't it blow your mind when you have friends and family that that just keep holding out and act like you've never told them anything about anything when it comes to God or matters of faith? The first thing I'd have you write down, and Jesus is going to illustrate this beautifully. First point, believe God's word. 
believed God's word. They did not believe the word of God. They actually, he's going to point out, they didn't even believe the Old Testament that they were clinging to to try to point out something with him. Believe God's word. If we are the sheep that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're the ones in step with him, then there should not be any gulf between our belief and this book. Our beliefs are shaped by this book, informed by this book, and our beliefs bow to this book. I was talking to my brother Stephen Hogg that will lead a team to Brazil in just a few weeks. And he mentioned uh, ministering to this one lady and he was quoting scripture to her and, and trying to unpack the gospel for her in a clear and concise way. And she said, that's not, I've never heard that before. That's not in my Bible. And he said, do you have one here? She said, yes. They got it off the shelf and went, dust filled the atmosphere, right? Opened up the Bible and, and guess what? He took her right to, she said, oh, I guess it is in there. <laughs> but I've never heard that before. And he said, can't say that anymore. They, they didn't believe God's word. They wanted him to say something, but they wanted him to say what they wanted to hear. Watch that. Culture and even some cultural Christians want pastors and want believers to say things about God, but they wanted to say it in a way that they want to hear it and not to give anything that pushes them toward repentance. Jesus says in the verses that follow, look, I've already told you this, verse 25. I, I, I've already told you this. When I told you before you didn't believe, I, I can hear him. I'm, I'm not trying to add to God's word, but he's like, if I tell you now, will you believe? He knows the answer to that. Not only did I tell you, I showed you. Look at verse 25. I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name also are preaching to you and you don't believe. The Father in heaven has already shown you, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, there he goes again, hear my voice. They don't believe because they cannot believe. Jesus then launches into this familiar refrain in verse 27. We've already seen it in chapter 10, but hear it again. He said, my sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Wow. So he says, my sheep follow me. They have eternal life. They'll never perish and nobody can take them from me. I want you to notice just how secure they are. It's not just that Jesus has his hand on the believer. Look at the very next verse and verse 29, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Well, well, brothers and sisters, my fellow sheep, looks like we're doubly held. If you had any concerns about the fact that God has all authority, they, they put two exclamation points on this and said, Jesus says, I've got you and the father's got me and got you too. It's like holding hands with one of my kids who, who wants to cross a, a busy freeway and not only am I holding their hand, but, but the authority that would stop all the traffic is actually walking and holding mine, holding theirs too. Wow. You're safe in Christ, but you're not safe outside of Christ. If this is true for the believer, you have to know this. It's here without a big leap. Then the opposite is true for the unbeliever. 
you are exposed and not safe and can spend an eternity separated instead of united with Christ. Then, verse 30, the clear claims of Gideon again, and he does it in a way that ticks him off. He's really good at that. He says, I and the Father are one. Well, that's not what they wanted him to say. They wanted him to say, yes, I'm the Messiah. So then they could say, let's. He says, I and the Father are one. He's already said much of this. In fact, when they ask in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? I wonder if Jesus went back to where Mark records in chapter number eight. If he had a flashback to where he told some folks, look, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear and you do not remember. This is the life verse of many a home with teenagers. Yes? No? Just kidding. Not ours. Ours are awesome. They're amazing. Um, Actually, it could be the life verse for anybody. Some of us, when you walk into that room for the fifth time, you're like, now why did I come into this room? This, this maybe shouldn't be your life verse. I don't know. But Jesus is like, I keep saying the same thing over and over and you just won't hear it. These men are so wrapped up in their religion, they've so squinted their eyes because they want to see one thing that they have distorted their view of God. They're missing the glory of the Son of God right in front of them because they want religion on their terms. Remember, this is a people under siege by Roman occupation. They want a political solution. They want a superior morality, not so they can live holy lives, but so they can show that they are up here and everybody else is down here. They don't want love with flesh on. They want a warrior king to come with a sword and immediately push back the Roman Empire. They don't want the word of God with hands and feet walking toward those outside the Jewish family. No, they don't want God's plan. What they want is for God to do the part of his plan that benefits them the most. Boy, that doesn't resonate at all with our culture, and even sometimes, if we're honest with how we even pray about God's will. They want a deliverer from their troubled reality. They want a problem solver, not the son of the living God confronting their own sinful, selfish desires. They want judgment for them, not themselves. The Apostle Peter would write, it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those be who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We as believers, we as Jesus' sheep know that part of our worship and part of our affection and part of the beauty of our relationship with God is He keeps us sensitive to sin and on our knees and face before Him, walking, endeavoring to walk rather, in holiness that we might be useful. Jesus reminds them of the truth. He has declared the truth. And then he gives them the very thing they're asking for, but he does it in a way they don't like. He says, I and the Father are one. The next verse, look in your Bibles, it says, so they pick up stones again to stone him. Now Jesus' response will take us to our second point this morning. But it's very, very important. 
I want you to write down, believe God's work. Believe God's work. That's what he's calling them to do. Jesus gets right to it. Let's look at it in verse 32. Jesus answered and said, I have shown. So he said, I've told you. And now he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Look at all that's happened, all the good that's come, all of the blessings that we've enjoyed together. Look at the favor of God that we have enjoyed. Now, which point there is it that is upsetting you? What were some of those works that we've seen just in John's gospel play out before our eyes? Well, you may remember in chapter 2, he turned water into wine. After that, he went to Jerusalem and kicked out the extortionists of the temple. And he embodied the Old Testament prophecies that said he would have zeal for the house of God. In chapter 3, John the Baptist testified that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He said he must increase, I must decrease. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of a royal official without ever taking a step in the direction of the child who was dying in another town. In chapter 5, he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. He called God his father. He called himself the son of God. And then he called himself the son of man, which is a a title used in the book of Daniel by the prophet Daniel to describe the Messiah. In chapter 6, he miraculously fed 5,000 men and women and children. He then miraculously crosses the sea. He calls himself the bread of life and the son of man again. In chapter 7, he stands up at the festival of shelters And says to the crowd, come to me, receive the Holy Spirit. Only the Messiah could make that promise. In chapter 8, Jesus continues to preach at the festival. He applies Isaiah 4's prophecy to himself. He called God his father. He refers to himself as the son of man and the great I am. The name of deity. In chapter 9, he healed a man born blind. And in chapter 10... He's referred to himself as the good shepherd, a fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus knew the people loved miracles. He knows that people love when somebody's suffering is abated or their life begins to move in a positive direction. But he also knows that people are naturally bent against the very word of God. He knows that humanity wants to filter the works of God and the word of God. Jesus, just end our suffering and give us a better day. Jesus, just tell us things that will make us feel good about the direction we're already heading in. And Jesus steps into both worlds and says, no, I'm not doing either. I only do what the Father sent me to do. And the work he sent me to do was to restore humanity to glorify. He knows who is genuinely being drawn to him by the Father. He knows who's playing games under the banner of religion. Jesus knows. Remember when they said in verse 24, you know, how long will you keep us in suspense? Look, look at the very first word there in verse 24. I'm taking you back for a reason. I want you to notice the heart of these around him. So the Jews and the word gathered around. Now the ESV The uh, NASB and the NIV render that gathered around. Uh, The word is actually kikloho, and it is rendered in the CSB, bettered, as surrounded. 
Because the word means encircled and surrounded. The feel of the word is one of entrapment. It's not a small group gathering uh, to pass the communion wafers. It's, this is folks circling about like wolves do to try to trap and get somebody. The reason they want him to state his identity plainly is not so they can believe and repent. No, it's so they have grounds to condemn him. They want to surround Jesus so they can string him up for blasphemy. Verse 33, Jesus says, or or rather the crowd, I'm sorry, responds and says, it's not for the good work that we're going to stone you. (laughs) They're standing there holding the stones. We're not going to stone you for all those miracles you did. We're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. What's Jesus done? Don't forget, they look like they're the chief actors in this story, but Jesus is in charge here. What's he done? He has graciously exposed the posture of their hearts. He has graciously exposed their unbelief and called them out for what they were. He is the promised Messiah sent by God to redeem his people. There's no denying the miracles of Jesus and they serve as an unmistakable sign that he is in fact the Christ, yet the Jews persist in their unbelief. Verses 37 and 38, he says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Remember, this crowd's problem is not intellectual ignorance. It's spiritual ignorance. They are spiritually blind. They know what he said. They know what he did. But they are unwilling to embrace the truth about who he is. Unless someone is drawn to Jesus, you can be so well-versed in apologetics, you can teach at SES down the road. But you will not overcome their spiritual ignorance if they are willfully blind to Christ. Ashley and I have had many occasions with friends who are not believers who will bring up tough text questions. They'll call us or send us a text. Sometimes we get a heads up. It's been a while since we've had one of these, but we get a heads up. It's like, you got a few minutes? I, I hear a couple passages I want to ask you about. And there, if you've ever had these conversations with lost friends, you know there's a handful of about 10 passages they want to talk to you about, right? They're all, most of them are Old Testament. Shocker. And so they're like, 10 passages, yeah, I want to talk to you about this. And it's an hour-long conversation to starters, right? That's the intro. And it came to a point where Ashley and I, as we developed our relationship with uh, several of these people, we'd kind of come up, not with this phrase, but essentially this heart. Listen, if I can answer this perfectly, and you see clearly that the Bible is in fact true, will you trust Jesus as Savior? Is this the only thing keeping you from God? It rarely is. I mean, when we get honest, it it just rarely is. They're like, well, no, that's not it. I've got other questions about. And then they start talking and you hear that unwilling heart that just will not submit to the Lord. So we'll have a Bible discussion, but it takes the heat off of it, too. We've saved ourselves a lot of time with that. We also know how better to pray. Listen to me, friend. Anybody looking for an excuse to ignore Jesus will find one. Anybody looking for an excuse to ignore Jesus will find one. And yet, Jesus clearly did the work. 
of the one sent by the Father, his only begotten Son, to fulfill the mission of the promised Messiah. Jesus was calling these stiff-necked people to look at his works, to believe the work of God. If you've ignored what I've said, look at what I've done. He says, look, in Psalm 82, that Old Testament that you guys love, the Psalms, the Bible, by the way, that's the Bible Jesus had in that day, but the, the Bible that we hold, those Psalms, those songs of worship, we even refer to judges earthly judges as gods, lowercase g sometimes, because they were God's representatives of righteous justice. That's why it says little gods and your gods and things like that. Don't get bent out of shape on that. He, he says, you're okay with that? You're okay with calling an earthly judge who's a sinner, a god. Here I am, I've not sinned, I've done miracles, and, and you've got stones in your hand because I'm proclaiming the truth about who I am. They would have none of it. Again, they sought to arrest him, verse 39, but he escaped from their hands. It's a, it's a dramatic encounter. But I want to tell you, those of you under the sound of my voice this morning have heard the word of God. And, and Romans 1 tells us, as we open our eyes and behold the beauty of creation, we've seen the work of God around us. Believe the word of God. Believe the work of God. Follow Christ. He will satisfy the longings of your soul. You were made for His glory. And your resistance of that will keep you miserable. You might be wealthy, but you'll be miserable. In this life and certainly in eternity. Then there's this shift that happens in the last part of the passage here. I want you to look at the text with me. Jesus is about to leave where he is with this hostile crowd of unrepentant Jews and move to a familiar place. Look at verse 40 with me. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Wow. So he leaves the festival and goes there. Where's the there? This across the Jordan near where John had been baptizing. A people, a crowd, uh, uh, rather a crowd of people arrive. Now this word, uh, they assemble, they arrive, they gather. is very different from the other word. This is just that coming to him. They're not encircled to entrap. They're not surrounding to subdue. They came to Jesus. A crowd of people believed the word of God through John. A crowd of people believed the work of God in and through Jesus. This meant they had been drawn to Jesus. When we believe God, we say yes to Jesus. When we believe God, we claim to be followers of Christ. When we do that, listen to me, we are accepting, affirming, and by God's grace, applying his word and work to our own lives. That's what it means to believe God. This is who we are. This is who they were there. We can trust the word of God. I'll give you that final encouragement in just a moment, just to kind of land the plane with this encouragement as Julia comes. We can trust the word of God. Why? Because it is the very word of God. 
Yes, the Bible is made up of 66 books written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Yes, it's in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Yes, written by more than 40 authors, most of whom never met one another because they wrote over a period of 1,500 years. Yes, the Bible uh, and its events historically have been supported by more than 23,000 archaeological digs. All those things are great, but if there were no digs and if there were no other evidence to support it, it's still the word of Almighty God. And you can believe it. You can stake your eternity on this book. The accuracy is unparalleled in historical writings. We can trust God's work. We can trust all of God's work, but we can trust the greatest work in particular, which has all of humanity's attention in one of the most famous verses of all time. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the world he created. He loves us. He didn't leave us to suffer the consequences of our own rebellion. He sent His own divine Son into the world to save us. He sent the man, Christ Jesus. Unlike us, Jesus didn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule, giving honor and thanks to Him and obeying Him in everything. He didn't deserve God's judgment in any way. He didn't deserve to die. And yet Jesus did die. And although he had the power of God to heal the sick and raise the dead, he allowed himself to be crucified, executed on a Roman cross. Why? The extraordinary news, the greatest news is that Jesus died as a substitute for rebels like you and like me. He took upon himself the judgment and punishment that we deserve by dying on the cross. Death is the punishment for rebellion and he died our death. All of this is completely undeserved by us. That's why it's called grace. We rejected God, but because of his great love, God sent his son to die for us. This is the greatest work of God. It starts with God. It transforms us and continues with us glorifying God as his ambassadors. We believe the word of God. We believe the work of God. And then we look at these ones. Two crowds mentioned here this morning. One in Jerusalem that were actively unwilling to believe the word and work of God. And then a crowd near Jordan that did. I know many of us have friends and family all over the spectrum. Some actively rejecting. Some look like, ah, it's hard to tell. Are they softening? Are they not? I think they're making a move and then this happens or that happens. Ah, it's heart-wrenching to watch that process sometimes. But here's my prayer. I pray that each one of us would be burdened for those who don't believe so that we might pray for them that they get there. And we might continue to faithfully share the gospel with them so they might get there. And we might continue to live out the work of God in our own lives so they might get there. Let me remind you of an incredible word and work of Jesus in Luke 19.10, the Bible says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Spurgeon said it. They're so lost, they need saving. But they're also so lost, they need seeking. God knows exactly where they are. 
And it's His will to get them there. Not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We want to continue to pray for them, that God would soften their hearts and show them their sin and rebellion and give them ears to hear His voice. Church family, keep sharing the Word of God. There's no plan B. There's not any creative, innovative thing. There's not some, all right, we've done that for a while. Now let's try sharing something else. Nope. Share the Word of God. Keep displaying and doing the work of God. We are the means by which the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And we get to do it together in the hopes that our friends and family might get there too. What a Savior. What a God. What a word, what a work. Let's pray. Father, we're struck this morning by how easy it is for us to forget so many things. Help us never to forget. Your word is forever settled in heaven. It's trustworthy. It's true. It's not just a resource for us to encourage ourselves when we get out of a jam, uh, or we get in a jam, rather, Lord. It, it is life to us. It nourishes us in our inner man. Help us to feast on your word. Lord, help us to Uh, display your work in us and through us in such a way that people are drawn to you. God, give us a burden for those who don't believe, like you demonstrated here in our text this morning, to engage those on the outside. Lord, we're forgetful. We need reminders from time to time. Sometimes you send uh, adversity into our lives to remind us that we cannot be self-made men and women. Sometimes Lord, you send blessing into our life to remind us that you see us and you are entrusting us to steward things for your glory. And sometimes, Lord, through your word and the practice of the church, you ordain reminders for us that we might never forget the work that you've done on the cross. That's what the Lord's table is, communion, the Lord's supper. And Father, we bow our hearts this morning for that posture. Lord, would you move in our midst in that special way in Christ's name. Amen.